Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't want to flag it to the world? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I have no medical background, but I'm a 40-year-old woman who has gone through freezing her eggs. Very relevant to this episode. I'm joined as always by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, a CREI certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. We started this podcast with the aim to provide easy to understand information on hard concepts relating to fertility, infertility and all aspects of women's health. In our last episode for the year, we are joined by Dr. Michelle Pete, the program leader, and Shireen Sandu, a PhD candidate from the Psychosocial Health and Wellbeing Research Unit at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne. Both women have extensively researched the decision-making process of egg freezing and are developing an online tool that aims to help women making this decision. Today's conversation is about the psychosocial impact of elective egg freezing. Welcome back to Knocked Up. Today, as always, we've got Raylia, Dr. Raylia Lou, and we're also joined today by Shireen and Michelle. Raylia, tell us why are Michelle and Shireen joining us today and how do you know them? Shireen and Michelle are professional colleagues of mine, and we go back quite a long way, particularly Michelle and I. We've known each other for, would be about five or six years now, Michelle, I think, that we've been working together yes, through... Is. Yeah, through the University of Melbourne and Royal Women's Hospital, researching a common area of passion of both of us, which is egg freezing and other fertility aspects of women's lives. And Michelle, I might ask each of these ladies to introduce yourselves, but Shireen is an amazing PhD student and researcher who is both supervised by Michelle and by myself. Uh, as well as by Professor Martha Hickey at Melbourne University. And Shireen is conducting currently an amazing study looking at women's attitudes to egg freezing and trying to figure out things we can do to help women in an objective and non-partisan way to make important decisions about their fertility. So let's start with Michelle. Michelle, tell us about you. As Raylia said, we've known each other for about six years and worked together uh, on a whole, I guess, a lot, a set of research that looks at the egg freezing experience of women and also of doctors who treat women. Uh, my background is I'm a behavioural scientist. I, my main focus is women's health. So I'm a behavioural scientist who likes to go to women and ask them about their experience of illness, what it is that they feel that they need to help, and then try and meet that need by developing interventions. This is only one area that I work in, but it's an area that I am very passionate in. And um, with Rayleigh over the last few years, have really been able to build a portfolio of research in this space. 
as in terms of Shireen, Shireen, as Raylia said, Shireen's our student. I don't know, Shireen, if you want to talk a little bit about why this and how I came across it. Yeah, I was um, working in a corporate job and then I decided to have a career change. And from there, I felt that every decision that I was making with my career, I I thought about, you know, what what about having a family? How is this going to work? And so I think from there, it really it was very important for me to be able to. Uh, it was a bit, it became a very uh, passionate thing for me to uh, be able to have those sort of thoughts and then think that you know there are other women around that you know are in similar situations to me, having those similar considerations where they may not have a partner and you know they're making these types of decisions as well so I guess that's where my interest came from so I have been working with Michelle and Raylia since my honours degree so uh, this is where we looked at sort of the information that women wanted around egg freezing uh, and that was back in 2017 so now uh, I've been I was lucky enough to be able to do my PhD with both of them as well. So that's where we're going from now on. When it comes to egg freezing, it takes a little while for women to decide to do it. I, I know personally it took me probably about a year to decide to go to go ahead with egg freezing. I, I think maybe a place to start would be the psychological issues. What what do you find with women? What are they facing when they're making that decision? So we've spoken to quite a few women about their experiences and one of the common themes that come out is this roller coaster of emotions that they experience as they go through it. And this is not about the drugs that you take. This is really about that toing and froing, you know, yes, I'm going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. Is it worth the cost? So those sorts of things. So you know, they are, in fact, the, all the women we've spoken to say, tell us that this emotional roller coaster is actually far harder than the physical process of freezing your eggs. That's actually really quite easy uh, for most of them. Uh, in terms of the psychological impact, uh, again, it's very independent and it's based on what a person's, you know, cultural background support systems are and so forth. But the research shows us that some women experience sadness and grief, and this is about not being able to have a child right now because a lot of women come to egg freezing because that's what they want right now and because they don't have a partner or whatever the circumstance, um, they can't. So there's a little bit of sadness and grief tied up with that. Um, there can be anxiety around, well, about the process, so whether they will get enough eggs, whether, you know, around self-injecting for someone who's probably never injected themselves before, about side effects. Um, and I know Rayleigh's talked about this sort of stuff before. Another thing that's come through a bit is the, in terms of the injections, the anxiety of getting the timing right. So in the sense that where women have to have the injections daily at a particular time. I had one woman tell me about a scenario where she'd bought tickets to go see a show and she had to then pack her injection in a bag with her, go out in intermission in the public um, toilets and inject herself. And she was so anxious about potentially missing that window. And especially I think when we're talking about egg freezing where women are paying money for it, they don't want to make a mistake or miss something or stuff up. 
Some of the other sort of psychological impacts include potential disappointment. So if you get less eggs than you thought. And I know that in counselling, women are told, you know, this is something that to be, to expect this, expect that you're going to have a magic number in your head. Uh, but even if they do that, over the course of the cycle, this number can change. And even if the number they get at the end is more than what they anticipated in the beginning, because it may have changed over the cycle, it can still be disappointing. Something else that we've had women talk to us about is about feelings of shame or failure. And it's that idea of how did I get here? What is wrong with me that I haven't been able to find a partner right now? I can't believe I've put myself in this position. And that can make things you know, difficult for them. There's things like being confronted with that thought, even in an, in a clinic sometimes when you go and there are couples there to have IVF and if they're the only one there by themselves, um, there's stigma and we can maybe talk. It's similar to what you're saying where some women may feel isolated and alone going through the procedure, like Michelle mentioned, when they're going into a fertility clinic and they may see couples there, they may feel saddened by that and feel like they are alone in it they're not alone there are other women that are going through similar considerations and similar um, thoughts as well but I probably should also acknowledge a lot of what I've talked about is very negative and there are some positive psychological things as well we have a group of consumers that we talk to call them consumers that's a bit of a research term a group of patients that we talk to and although they tell us that these are some of the experiences they had. Most of them feel quite empowered by their decision. And it seems to come from this idea of they don't want to regret doing everything they can to give them the most choice later. Interestingly, a lot of them don't necessarily intend to use their eggs. It's more about giving them the option to use the eggs. And, and that may not be a popular thought or opinion, I come from a psychological background, so my my thing is it's about women feeling it's the right thing for them and this is what they need, and maybe that's the pure benefit you get from freezing eggs rather than necessarily about whether you achieve a baby from those frozen eggs. You know, So it's really about giving them the most options for when it is the right time for them to have a child, that they've got this there. The other thing I like to always acknowledge is most of the women in, in the survey Shireen did and with the women we talk to, they are very aware that these eggs have no guarantee of success, but they still like to know they have them. You know, there is has been some research around the world looking at regret, and on the whole, most women don't regret their decision. There is a handful that do, but I think that comes down to whether they've made an informed choice or not. So it's about the information they have beforehand and whether they've weighed up all the factors. I think that's really true. I think that women need to be counselled really objectively. Uh, as a as a doctor, that's always one of my goals. And also really realistically because some women are great candidates for freezing eggs and some women are not. And I can really feel that there's, you know, in our research compared to in my clinical practice, I'm seeing a skewed population of women in my clinical practice because I'm seeing women who've decided to freeze their eggs you know, who are at that last point of seeking information, but who are already really well informed. They've done a lot of their own research and they've done a lot of reading online. And I think that's why the tools that we have created and that we are creating online 
which I'll get Shireen to tell us a little bit more about in terms of journal facts. We'll put a link in the show notes in case anyone wants to participate in the current study we're doing. Uh, But they're so important because women are looking online before they see a doctor and, you know, we want there to be really good information online that's objective, that's not coercive, that's not inaccurate, that's not overly rosy but that is realistic and not overly pessimistic. So, you know, we need that. It's so important. In terms of clinical practice, I can tell you I have very, 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 very few women, in fact none, that I've ever spoken to who've regretted freezing their eggs. Um, They've come to that decision having thought about it a lot and have decided to do it. And I'm so excited that more and more I am seeing women come back to use their eggs and helping women have babies with frozen eggs. And I think there's also a bit of a lag in the research which is inevitable uh, and it's something that we all have to work with when we interpret the international research that, you know, in my observations, looking at my own patients anecdotally but also from the international research, there's generally about a five-year lag between when someone freezes their eggs and when someone comes back to use their eggs. Um, The youngest person I think who I've frozen eggs for and they've come back to use them, there's been a three-year lag. You know, there is a big time lag between when you think about freezing your eggs and when you use them and there's many reasons for that so for some women they will use their eggs only in a certain set of circumstances where they have a partner and then I've had patients who have met a partner not that long after they have frozen their eggs and have had baby number one naturally and come back to me to have a second child with their frozen eggs I'm actually treating a patient like that right now so in terms of the demographics, I think they are shifting. And I think it's also important to recognise that egg freezing is a relatively new science and that egg freezing is only been effective, really effective, for less than a decade since we brought on vitrification, which is flash freezing of, je- of eggs, as the mainstream most common technology. And it was really only in 2012 that the international societies of reproductive medicine gave egg freezing a non-experimental label. So here we are in 2020 going into 2021. It's not even been, you know, 10 years since that decision. And what we found at the very beginning of egg freezing was that the early adopters of the technology were women who came from a high socioeconomic background because back then it was even more expensive than it is now and who were at that very cusp of their reproductive life. So, you know, freezing eggs well over 35. What I'm now seeing clinically, which is quite exciting really in terms of prognosis for egg freezing, is we are getting a bit of a younger demographic who are coming at or even um, before the age of 35 in, in the early 30s to think about egg freezing. And that's a different cohort of women because they are proactive decision makers who are creating a resource for themselves, not under pressure, but because they've thought about it and they, they're being strategic, as opposed to a reactive demographic who are already very stressed that their best fertility is well behind them and they're freezing fewer eggs of poorer quality. So we're going to see massive shifts in study outcomes, I predict, looking into the next decade uh, from egg freezing. And Rayleigh, you and I have spoken about this before as well, about sometimes deciding to freeze your eggs and go down that pathway actually opens up doors to other opportunities you may not have thought about. 
So there's not a lot of research on this, but just anecdotally from talking to different clinicians, that a lot of women will come in, decide to freeze the eggs, and then start actually thinking about doing the single mother option which they may not have thought about before. And they might go through that process and still decide it's not right for them because they do want to be a parent with a partner. But there are also some that will go, yep, this is, this is, I can make this work. This is how I'm going to achieve my parenthood goals, even if they hadn't really thought about it before. Uh, and that's one of the things we hope to look at in Shireen's study as well. What is it that women do afterwards and how does that change what their plans are? Absolutely. And I have many patients, actually, who have come in to talk to me about egg freezing. And I've said to them, look, you're not the world's best candidate for egg freezing. You don't have a high ovarian reserve. You're over 35. Maybe you're close to 40. Maybe you are 40. And maybe we should be talking about what it would mean to you to have a baby now. Because even if you decide that's not for you, if we don't talk about it and if you don't think about it and if you don't have counselling about it, then you may have decisional regret in the future. Shireen, can you tell us a little bit about your current study without sure. giving too much away because it's, it's actually a blinded study, so Shireen can't give too much away. Do you want to quickly tell us what a blinded study is? From a science perspective... What we do know is sometimes if people think they're getting, if we're talking about a drug trial, for example, if someone thinks they're getting what is the active treatment, there's this thing called placebo effect where we know that people who think they're getting the active drug then can have a positive response to that drug. By blinding, it means we can overcome the placebo effect or we can overcome the effect that your attitude towards a particular drug um, can have an impact on the outcome. So obviously, with Shireen's study, we are not doing a drug trial, but even for psychological studies, we do also try and do blinding to limit the impact of the positive associations to what you get, having an influence on what you tell us. And actually that way we can measure true effect. In Shireen's case, which different info which information you get might actually have a greater impact on outcomes. So what the out, when I talk about outcomes, what we're looking at is psychological outcomes. So we're looking at decision-making and how these resources help with that egg-freezing decision. Shireen, I was thinking before you launch into talking about the study, maybe you can talk a little bit about the information needs study. So, you know, what women are telling you about the information that's out there and mm. whether it's useful and what you've found. That would be fascinating. What, what are people finding out there? I think from the information that um, I've got, I th a lot of women are informed by the media. With the media, you know, you're, you're only given one, one or two minutes of information from each clip. So, uh, so the information that they provide is quite limited, whether it's on the news or in a show or something like that where people are discussing egg freezing. You've also got the internet as well and what we've found is some of the the information is quite limited there. You know, you, you'll have like blog posts, um, fertility clinic websites as well. And what we find is that women want to know Women want to know details. They want to know, you know, what are the costs, what are the risks, what's the success rates. The information that's available may not be able to provide all of that. Um, so I guess, say, take success rates, 
for example, you may find across different fertility clinic websites, they may um, report them differently. So if someone's looking at that, um, it's very hard for them to compare them. Uh, also with costs as well, not all fertility clinics will provide that information. And so, again, if someone is going straight to the internet to try to search for a clinic, it can be quite difficult to compare those and see, you know, which, which clinic do I want to go to for further information there. Also, I think it's um, one of the things which I was just discussing with Michelle is women only know what they know. So if they are not given this information, they don't know that it exists. They don't know where to go to get it. They may not even consider, you know, their fertility or, or, you know, their options around egg freezing. So I think creating more awareness around it will be able to help women to be able to make those more proactive decisions. And this is why, you know, that idea of you don't know, you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. So that often puts the onus on the people who actually have that information to be able to create information that goes, these are the things you should know. Well, I shouldn't use the word should. Creating information where it has all the pertinent bits because there are also some things uh, for that, you know, you can think to look up, like all the things Shireen talked about, the cost, success rates. You know, a big question we get is how many eggs do I need Um, So they're the obvious ones. But from the women who've gone through egg freezing, there are also some not obvious questions that you don't think to ask. Uh, And these include the emotional impacts we've talked about earlier, you know, the importance of having a good support network. You know, you need someone to pick you up from the hospital. And if you're a woman who's alone, that might mean asking someone who you don't know that well, which one of the women I spoke to talked about. So, So there are things like that which women don't even know they need to know. And so the onus is on us as either healthcare professionals or or information providers to make sure there is information available that covers all those bits. I think think a challenge, and I, I, I don't know the answer to this, but, you know, I think a challenge is that for many of these questions, there is no true generic answer. So there is no one answer. So in many ways, women want a fertility consultation without having had a fertility consultation. (laughs) And what they need is a fertility consultation (laughs) because it doesn't matter what averages are. It matters what your situation is because, you know, every woman is different and her circumstances are unique, including her gynecological history, her ovarian reserve, because you or I may be demographically exactly identical on paper. We might be the same age. We might be the same height. We might be the same weight. We might have the same educational background, you know, and we might have very different ovaries. And that's just what kind of nature has given us. And, you know, I always say Bill Ledger gave me a catchphrase, which I use a lot in my clinical practice, and that is you cannot stimulate a follicle that is not there right? So if somebody doesn't have a lot of eggs, you're never going to get a lot of eggs. You need to have that to start with. That's a critical ingredient. And the number of eggs that a woman can get in an egg freezing cycle is very different person to person. Even if they are demographically identical, they need an individualized assessment to give them that information. And probably what is also true, although is more difficult to ascertain from numbers on paper, is that egg quality is also different woman to woman. And we've got to remember that because, you know, in the context of the amount of IVF that's gone on in the world, only a tiny fraction of women have actually frozen their eggs compared to all the IVF babies and all the IVF data out there. We've got now more than 8 million IVF babies in the world, which is unbelievable. But 
you know, there's not that many babies that have been born from frozen eggs out of that 8 million. It's, it's you know, this is a relatively new technology and a relatively new science. And so when we do counsel patients, we're not looking at 40 years of data. We're looking at, you know, 10 years of data and that data has been rapidly changing in that 10 years. So, you know, we can't look back to project forward. And the other important fact is that we then go to the data that we have at our fingertips, which is IVF data, because we know that frozen eggs act pretty much like fresh eggs in IVF if they survive the warming. So we use IVF data to project egg freezing statistics. And we actually counsel very conservatively when we do that because most people who use IVF suffer infertility and that's why they're using IVF. Whereas most women who freeze eggs, freeze eggs proactively uh, because, but have not necessarily even tried to get pregnant and might be quite fertile. So it's one of those really difficult things in projecting success rates. And then we've got to also remember that it takes two to tango and we need sperm. And the prognosis of an embryo is impacted by the sperm also. So all we can do is project a one-sided argument based on data that is not directly relevant. And that's why we can't see really amazing success rate, clear you know, obvious, this is what you get if you get this. It's not like when you go to the shop, if you buy orange juice, what you will take home is orange juice. You know, it, it just doesn't work like that. And in biology, and particularly in reproductive biology, you know, you need a good dose of good luck as well. We need those eggs, even if they were great eggs, to do everything right when they meet sperm to make a baby in some pretty complex manoeuvres, which are entirely outside your doctor's control and outside of your control. So that is the, I guess, the challenge we face in prognosticating in the field of egg freezing. And I think there's uh, two points to that as well, Raylia. Where you go and get information, aside from online, can make a difference because it is difficult to predict response, I guess, to egg stimulation unless you are someone like you who's a CREI. And, you know, we have talked to women who go and get their AMH test done through their GP and then t are told things which are wrong. You know, there's one one of our patients who went trying to be proactive. She was a younger woman, started, thought, I'll go to my GP first to start talking about my fertility. The GP ordered an AMH test and then told her she was sterile. Right, luckily she knows me <laughs> um, and I had a conversation Went, you need a second opinion they can't tell that based on that one test. Um, and she went and spoke to other doctors and, you know, is on a, on a, is, things got resolved. So there's one thing about making sure you're talking to the right professional about this and someone who can actually give you uh, the most accurate advice that we can given the technology we have with all the caveats that you've said. Um, the other thing that I sort of didn't mention earlier about psychological issues that it's probably worth saying, this is incredibly rare, but there is the potential that someone who's young, who's not tried to fall pregnant before, comes in, starts having investigations and might discover that they actually might have, might actually have infertility or might have a situation that means they can't have children or it's going to be difficult. And that also can be quite traumatic. And I said, I think it's rare, Rayleigh, you can talk more about that, but we probably should acknowledge that that can also happen. And you're not prepared for that because you think you're young, you're healthy, and you're trying to be proactive. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I see patients like that all the time, not necessarily because they're deciding to freeze eggs, but that do have a confronting diagnosis that they were totally not expecting. Like you have your 22-year-old who comes off the pill and doesn't get a period and you realise he's in menopause. Like those patients do walk in the door. And we do need to acknowledge that sometimes when you do come to investigate a problem, you find another greater problem. And sometimes in the fertility world where you look um, for certain information, you might uncover more than you bargained for. I guess uh, that segues nicely, I think, into something that's coming uh, to Australia that's already in the US at the moment, and that is direct to consumer AMH testing. I'd like to ask you ladies what you think about that and, and how that might. It worries me a lot. I'm actually, it's separate to Shreen's study. I've got another student who's actually going to investigate whether sort of the impact of AMH testing on women in Australia. At the moment, most of it is done through practitioners, so the impact's probably not going to be quite the same as direct to consumer. But it does concern me because this information needs to be really carefully interpreted. AMH testing, when it first came out, I remember it being spruced as this sort of egg timer test and this miracle test that can help tell you about your fertility. And But that's not what the evidence shows us. Yes, it's a tool that doctors can use to help guide, you know, fertility cycles. It's a tool that they can use to help you plan for your family, but it is not this number this number that you get is not the be all and end all and it really concerns me i don't know what direct to consumer testing is going to be telling people about their result but it worries me that they'll get it without the guidance of a health professional and that's going to probably create a lot more anxiety a lot more panic and stress as it is in society women have a lot of pressure put on them about being mothers and i worry this is just going to make things worse we have to address it, and I think it's it's really important, even more so, you know, with the information that Shireen's, you know, kind of working on in egg freezing, that it be out there. I think with the AMH, I mean, it's important to understand what is AMH. It's just a hormone level in a blood test. You know, it tells us a little bit about the volume of your ovary. So it tells us if your ovary is smaller, larger, somewhere in the middle, and, yes, you can have extremes. So you can have polycystic ovaries with really super high AMH. You can have, you know, kind of menopausal ovaries with undetectable AMH and you can have women seeking fertility who are at either end of that spectrum or in the middle. So look, I think you can look and have a low AMH and have a small, petite, little, normally functioning ovary at a young age and be completely fertile. I mean, it's important to understand that we only release one egg a month anyway, naturally. So how many runners up there were there has no bearing on your fertility that month or your chance of getting pregnant that month and you might be completely fine but just have a little ovary and have nothing else you know particularly wrong with you and no barrier to getting pregnant or you might be over 35 with a polycystic ovary and despite the fact that you have heaps and heaps and heaps of eggs you know they might not be such good eggs in fact they might be really challenged eggs and unless you have you know a little bit of help you may not get pregnant naturally having said that many many women with polycystic ovaries do get pregnant naturally with a bit of um, tweaking and help but you know just to say that you have heaps of eggs doesn't mean that they're good eggs. So really, AMH is a very flawed test of fertility. It is open to misinterpretation and you do need nuanced counselling and personal guidance uh, no matter what your number is. So if you are thinking about freezing your eggs, how long is it taking a woman to go and seek guidance of a doctor 
for their case rather than relying on outside information? I don't think I know we have the answer to that, but we do, again, Shireen can talk about this. She does have some data on how long women think about freezing their eggs before they actually do it. Yeah, so it's not necessarily before actually doing it. It's um, how long it takes them to decide, you know, whether or not to freeze my eggs. So on average, we're seeing it takes about one year and nine months. But, you know, we did have some participants who were taking seven, eight years to make that decision as well. So it really just depends on the individual. It depends on how proactive you are in trying to search for that information. Like if you are just going for to the internet for that kind of information, it may take you longer because you don't have all the information there uh, to make that sort of personalised decision. Whereas if you are going to a GP, a fertility specialist, they can give you that more personalised information like what Raylia was saying before and then it could possibly take um, a lot shorter time to, to make that decision. I think you also have some aspects of egg freezing which could mean that you know, you make up your decision in a very short period of time. So, for example, the cost. So if it's just unaffordable for you, that might be your key barrier and then it will take a shorter amount of time to make that decision for that point in time. You know, one of the most common questions I get asked is, what is the best stage to freeze eggs? And my answer is always the only person who really knows the answer to that is you. To know that answer, you have to be well-informed. And what I mean by that is there's obviously the biological aspects, which I know Rayleigh has talked about in a prior Knocked Up podcast. The personal stuff is the stuff that only a woman will know. So can I afford it right now? How much am I willing to spend on it? Am I psychologically ready? There are, there, I think sometimes the reason it takes, you know, on average almost two years to make a decision is that toing and froing that I've spoken about, I spoke about earlier. And it's about coming to that place where you are actually psychologically ready to take that step. Do you have the supports around you? I had one participant, a patient, sorry, one patient who talked about raising it with their parents, this was more about being a single mum, raising this idea with their parents. And her mother said to her, why would you do that? And she just went, I'm never going to have the support. And that kind of changed her decision making. The reality is when it's the right time is very dependent on the personal experiences of that individual. Of course, that has to sit within the framework of what's biologically possible. But one of the things that Shireen's research has also found, I think, which is, again, supports this idea of making sure you're informed So we looked at this thing called uncertainty and unsurprisingly, a lot of women are not sure about what to do. But what we did find is the more more knowledge women had about egg freezing, the less uncertain they were about what they were going to do, be it freezing eggs or not. And of course, those who've seen a specialist had some of the lowest levels of uncertainty. And I think that comes down to them getting, you know, good quality information that's very specific to themselves. You know, we can't give a blanket answer around success rates and stuff because it is very individual. And the best place to get that is actually from a medical professional. And then it relates to you. It's not generalised. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard because you read something and, you know, women read things and there is general information out there. And this is from some different work. I've been doing a lot of work around fertility preservation and cancer for most of my career. And I used to always go to conferences and... Now it's kind of a given, but in the early days, people really didn't talk about fertility that much in cancer. And I put up that graph about female fertility, and I'm sure we've all seen now. Anyone who's gone on the internet has seen it and how female you know, fertility sort of declines with age. 
And the number of people that would come to me afterwards and say, is that true? Or, I, you know, they had just no awareness or knowledge about it. And I think these are people in a medical conference who didn't necessarily mm. understand. So then you put it out there to the real world. You go, how many women really understand this sort of stuff generally about themselves? And then these are graphs which are averages as well. So, you know, people that say, does that mean that's me? And I'm like, well, no, no, these are averages everyone's different. We all know people who have children later in life and, you know, do that naturally. So it really is about getting a personalized medicine approach. hundred percent. And I don't think it's surprising from a population perspective that this issue has been off the radar because really it's a problem of Gen X and becoming more of a millennial problem because previously the boomers, the baby boomers, my parents, uh, lived in a time where the average age of first baby for a woman was 20 or 21 years of age. That was the average at that time. So really in the next generation, right now from the most recent Victorian reports, the average age was 32 for first baby. So you can see that in one generation, it has moved a decade. That is phenomenal. There's been such cultural shift. And when you think about averages, we're including all of the teenage pregnancies and all of the pregnancies at, you know, pushing the envelope of human fertility at the other end of the spectrum, including IVF. That is a huge generational shift. And it, when you, in context of that, it's not surprising that general public awareness has not caught up with the impacts of that shift because it's not something they've ever seen before in a previous generation. You know, I mentioned earlier about this concept of stigma. I think, you know, there is a lot of that, and I'm not an expert on stigma, but has this impact around, be it, I th you know, I remember thinking once about this idea that when you go through all the way through high school, what you're actually taught is not get pregnant. And then you get to your, be it your 30s or 40s or whatever age you are when you decide you want to be a parent and then you're doing the flip off. It's a complete shift of thinking where you spent your whole life trying to avoid one thing and then now you're trying so hard to do the other. And those sorts of, I guess, a conversation about female fertility decline doesn't happen when we're young. It's all the opposite. It's don't do this, don't have children, you know, until you're ready. But then we don't actually have the discussion about what that means for when it, we come to that point in our lives and having, you know, more discussion, more information, not only about female fertility, let's not judge women, whatever their choices are, be it to become a parent or not become a parent or how they might choose to do their families or really, you may not want to include this in the podcast, but what's really fascinating around stigma around the world is that often the childless single woman is ranked at the bottom rung of society and this is across different cultures and different countries and so that puts a lot of pressure on women as well to I guess try to achieve the parenthood goal rather than necessarily just being really open and having the conversation that you can have whatever life you want be it a mother or not and still have a very fulfilling life because of the sort of that the, just that social judgment for many women who and I think that you're really you, it's changing because you talked earlier about the proactive women versus the reactive women and I think traditionally re, a lot of women go to egg freezing because they are worried about not being able to achieve their parenthood goals um, but there's also a lot of stigma around that and which is probably contributing to why they're delaying 
you know, they don't want to be able to say, oh, yes, I had to freeze my eggs or, or so forth. And I think that can make things really challenging as well in this experience. No, but I think, I think also that we have left the pink elephant in the corner, which is male partnerships in heterosexual relationships that we say, oh, you know, we, we kind of carry the stigma from one issue to another being all on the woman, you know, mm. contraception is all on the woman, you know, and then pregnancy is all on the woman and fertility planning is all on the woman. Like where is the man in this conversation and where is our discussion of what society and what biology and what their female partner might expect because I think that used to be really prescribed. I think people used to get married before they had babies. If they didn't, they were in some kind of, you know, shameful corner. And then men used to have very clear roles of, you know, kind of providership for families. I'm not saying that I have any agenda to advocate back to the 1950s nuclear family. I think women have come a long way and, you know, hear us roar. However, you know, we have completely obfuscated any kind of parental responsibility from the male. And I think that has in many ways, you know, kind of meant that there hasn't been a, this is what you do at this age. And that's what the social norm is. Now, no matter what, whether we want to be included in an average or a norm or a model, or whether we don't, which is completely fine and is our choice. I think from what that has said, I think as a societal message to men is you can have a 40-year-old childhood, you know, you can have a 40-year-long childhood before committing to anything. And I think that necessarily is not the message that should go forward either, that men need to be partners in parenthood because we know that men want to have children as much as women do. And I think the dynamic needs to have a bit of a tweak for it to work for everyone. And I think that awareness goes both ways, doesn't it? Like both men and women need to understand how natural fertility works because we can't have those let's wait till we're 40 to then start thinking about having a family. Uh, Both men and women have to make that decision younger if that's what they want. Just to finish up, I think it would be good to touch on perhaps our attitudes have changed to having a family and what are the barriers and what are maybe some things that could change to help women feel better about this? It's interesting, I think, because the process of egg freezing actually, at, at what I see, does open up discussions about other types of parenting and family dynamics. So be it um, doing a single mother. I had a colleague once suggest to me that what we could be talking about is women who choose to do the single mother pathway coming together and co-parenting together. So almost like a commune type setting where you can both, if you don't have a male partner, well, why can't you find another woman who's also doing the single parenting thing and you can co-parent together? And I thought that was an interesting idea. I don't know how that would work, but it was an interesting idea. But I think hopefully with more discussions and more awareness, it will allow having different types of family. Uh, We are seeing different types of family around the world, so why not? Uh, Rayleigh, you probably see more of this really in your practice. Yeah, I see every type of family and, you know, we we love to help anyone in whatever situation to have a family if that's their goal. So, you know, same-sex female couples, single mums by choice, same-sex male couples, heterosexual couples. Yeah, so I think it's great. It's great that we can do that. I haven't actually done any research looking at sort of social community attitudes around this. I did have an individual ask, Um, who's in a same-sex relationship, wanting 
more information about um, egg freezing or perhaps more tailored information because often we do talk about a male and female relationship but that doesn't cover their own personal way. And I think what we haven't really encountered, but I know from some of the other work I do um, in endometriosis, that one of the challenges is around gender um, stereotypes and gender labelling. And I guess we're quite gender normative in the way we talk about women freezing eggs and, and maybe there needs to be a bit more of a gender balanced language around that. And I'm not entirely sure how to manage that. I guess we've talked about the barriers of egg freezing, right? So those are things like financial and support networks and just access. So I guess my take-home message is that there's no right or wrong choice to make when it comes to egg freezing. You've just got to do what's best for you at that time. And I think the best way that you can do that is to inform yourself of the pros and cons and what it means to you and then also where you are in life um, and be able to make that informed decision. So what we are doing is um, we want to try to support women with their decision-making and we want to try to create useful resources for them um, to assist in that. So um, the current study we're doing is we're comparing how different educational tools help them to decide whether egg freezing is right for them. So if you would like to be involved, please, you can find us at eggfreezing.org.au where you can find more information and sign up as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you, Shireen and Michelle, for joining us today. That was fascinating. We talk a lot about egg freezing from a medical perspective, but we haven't really from the social side before. Thank you for having us. Oh, you're very welcome. And if you'd like to participate in the study, we will put the link in the show notes so you can just click on the link. Thank you. Great, thank you.